Episode 213, Dr. Susan Landers, author of the book, So Many Babies. My favorite mistake was after 14 years in academic medicine. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Dr. Susan Landers, her books, some special offers, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake213. As always, thank you for taking time to listen. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. Our guest today is Dr. Susan Landers. She's a retired neonatologist, author, and speaker. She practiced full-time in the NICU, or neonatal ICUs, for over 30 years and wrote a book about her experience titled So Many Babies, My Life Balancing a Busy Medical Career and Motherhood. So Susan's an expert in topics including physician burnout, breastfeeding medicine, and donor-human milk banking. During her career, she published over 30 peer-reviewed papers. And and Susan, I'm really glad that you're here. How are you today? Oh, thank you, Mark. I appreciate the invitation. I'm great. I'm looking forward to a good conversation. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about here today. I uh, It's funny, with NICU, if people are not familiar with that, I, I pointed out the neonatal ICU, for those who don't know, of course, stands for... I was oh, gonna, I was intensive gonna, care unit. My, mis, my mistake. Neonatal was, intensive care unit. It's just like an ICU for adults, except it's still filled with babies. Yeah, and the babies there are, are children range. What what ages are in the NICU? The babies are premature infants from twenty three or twenty four weeks gestation, born early to full term babies who were born sick. And some of these infants stay in the NICU for six months or more. The average length of stay is probably two months. Sort of depends on the weight and gestational age of the baby. But it's not, it's not a place parents think much about until they have a baby that has a problem or is born premature. So the general public sort of doesn't have it in the forefront of their mind. But for parents who have a child that's sick, it is a big deal and it's a life-saving area of the hospital. Yes, it is life-saving and life-changing. And the little little bit I've had the opportunity to work around um, hospitals and and work with people and observe them working in in the NICU, it's, um, yes, it's uh, such incredibly important, heroic, meaningful work. And the people who work in those settings um, are are amazing. So thank you. And, and thank you to the others who are helping babies and parents and their families that way. Well, you're welcome. I, the one thing that I miss the most since I retired from clinical medicine is the teamwork. You can't work in an ICU without appreciating all the other people, all the ancillary healthcare providers that make the care possible. And I miss working with the nurses and the respiratory therapists and my partners and social workers and lactation consultants. And there's this whole cadre of people that that um, 
come into an ICU, whether it's for adults or children or or neonates, and they make things happen. It's it's amazing to be a part of that kind of team. Yes. Well, thank you for acknowledging the full uh, team effort there, Susan, and thank you for your work. So um, as we dive in here, I don't know if your story is from the NICU or what the setting is. So instead of guessing, I'll just ask from your career um, and things you've done, Susan, what would you say is your favorite mistake? My favorite mistake was after 14 years in academic medicine, that is working for a medical school, actually two medical schools, and practicing in the NICU, teaching residents and fellows, teaching medical students. I decided to switch gears, pivot, and go into private practice. Now, private practice neonatology is very different from academic medicine. Uh, Usually, people in private practice do not do clinical research. There is less of an effort toward teaching residents and uh, students. There may be an effort uh, towards teaching nurse practitioners. And um, my husband and I made this major shift to leave academic medicine and go into private practice when I was 45 and he was 48. And, and what he was a physician also? What specialty? He is. My husband is a pediatric nephrologist. Mm-hmm. That's that's children's kidney diseases. And we had good jobs in academic medicine. We were working for a smaller medical school in a southern state. He was a division chief and vice chair of the department and just had the best job ever. We were recruited there for his job. And I had just kind of an average job and I was working too many hours and my clinical research was not going well. Um, I had started out at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. And my career got off to a good start until I started having children. And then things slowed down a bit. But I was still managing to do clinical research and write papers. Uh, so we moved to the second medical school for my husband's job, and I became very unhappy, not only because of managing three kids and a full-time career, but also because the clinical research wasn't going very well. I was having trouble getting papers published. I didn't have a collaborator in my area, but I did start in a new area there. I started in the quality improvement area in academics and also breastfeeding medicine in the NICU. But the long and short of it is I became very unhappy and disillusioned with academic medicine. I felt like I couldn't do it. I felt like I couldn't do it all and be really good at being a teacher and a researcher and a mom and take all the call and do all the hours. And so I just decided to change. Mm -hmm. And I convinced my husband to change along with me. (laughs) Now, at the time, he, I, 
Um, correct me if I'm wrong. He did not share similar disillusionment. He was in a leadership position doing that other work. Correct. He loved it. He had he had helpers, hot and cold running, secretary, research coordinator, transplant coordinator, nurse, and I just struggled as much as he was on Easy Street, um, and it began to affect our marriage, obviously. And I felt like I it, it enhanced my resentment of his having a good job. And it enhanced my feeling of struggling, not being able to make it because he had it so well. And I was still struggling to get myself securely footed. It had taken me eight years to get promoted. It should only take six or seven. <clears throat> he had been promoted more quickly than me. So for a number of reasons, I felt like I wasn't going to make it in right. academic medicine. Right. But not disillusioned with medicine, with the academic side. Of Actually, it. I was a little disillusioned mm -hmm. with, with the whole NICU thing. And I took a job working as a medical director for a small HMO, a health maintenance organization. I worked as a medical director for two years before we left academic. Uh, okay. The medical school owned this HMO. And the HMO was attempting to organize the care of all the primary care doctors at this medical school. And I enjoyed being a medical director. I learned a lot. I took a lot of physician executive courses. I traveled. I loved the meetings. I loved looking at the data. But And I loved talking to other physicians on the phone. But it felt like that I was working for the enemy. Hmm. I said no to physicians who were trying to get certain care for their patients more often than I said yes. And I was purely following these national protocols and guidelines that insurance companies and HMOs use, but it didn't feel right. I felt like, I really felt like I was working with the enemy. That's the only, that's the best yeah. way to it, express how I felt. And I, and bet so must, that, I, I bet it must have been frustrating having to say no, not from your professional clinical education and experience, but from these guidelines. I can exactly. see Exactly. That was it. I was listening to the docs on the phone going, oh, I hear you. I understand. But my company follows these guidelines and they won't let me approve this. And it, it just felt wrong. And so that was the final nail in my academic coffin. I, I, enjoyed the experience. I loved everything I learned about being a physician executive, but I just threw in the towel on academics and research and said, we got to do something different. And fortunately, my husband loved me enough <laughs> and loved <laughs> yeah. our family enough to make the change with me. So, so he didn't have to. Right. So I, I was going to ask, what was the motivation for you to pull him into this with you or the motivation for him to come with you. It seemed like that, that could have been separate, like your HMO job right. was. Tell us more about that. Well, he knew the HMO job was 
sort of a respite for me away from all the clinical hours. I was probably working 60 hours a week and taking way more night call than he was. And so he thought that the medical director job would be a recovery. And it wasn't. It allowed me time to say, I really want to be in clinical medicine. I love taking care of patients. And I knew I liked quality improvement by that time. And I missed it. And I didn't want to work for an insurance company. So we had to say to each other, wow, we've got to find a place where we both have good jobs. And and it did not take him too long to figure this out. I remember one of his buddies in pharmacology said, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And <laughs> he told me, he told my husband that. And I went, well, that's kind of silly. And he said, but it's true. And I said, well, maybe it is true. And so my husband loved me enough and we wanted to stay married and we wanted to have a a family together. And so he was willing to sacrifice and look for new jobs. Now, did that, now, mean, mo- did that mean moving though? Cause I saw yes, that he would. It okay. meant moving. Okay. It meant okay. moving and leaving where we were. And he had always wanted to practice in Austin, Texas. When we were in Houston, we had family in Austin and ha- had our eyes on retiring in Austin. And so when we decided to leave academics, this amazing job for him, an amazing job for me, just materialized in Austin. We were both able to work with people we had trained with in Houston. He was able to start a, a small subspecialty practice and grow it from five to 35 positions. I was able to join a group of nine men in a neonatology practice, three of whom I had trained with. It was like coming home. It really was wonderful. And the clinical medicine was great. It was easy. It was what I knew how to do. And it was almost effortless to just kind of rock back into the NICU and take care of patients and work with moms and talk to nurse practitioners and work with them. So it just turned out to be something that was wonderful for both of us. And that's where we stayed for the next 25 years. Yeah. So um, the, I mean, there were challenges and issues along the way. Would you say the mistake, the favorite mistake was going into academic medicine? Well, I told you initially my favorite mistake was leaving academic medicine. I had always wanted to be a researcher and publish papers and speak at meetings and present data. And in my mind, that was the the real deal in neonatology. But it turned out that I was better at being in private practice. I was I had an opportunity to become a medical director of the human milk bank. I began to do some real serious policy work with the American Academy of Pediatrics. 
And my opportunities in private practice were greater than they had been in academic medicine. So if I had, I don't know, I think, so the mistake is that I was in academic medicine for 14 years before I figured out that I needed to switch. Or, so yeah, um, it could be framed as, I mean, it almost sounds like also you're saying you you felt like it was a, it was a mistake leaving academic medicine, but it actually right. turned out to be a better path. Exactly. That's the way to summarize it, right? I think so. Yeah, you hit it. The first two years in private practice, I walked around going, well, this is really easy. And what is it that makes people good doctors in private practice? And, you know, I had a CV that was respectable and I had all this experience as a physician executive. and Nobody cared about that much in private practice. They really care about who's nice, how many patients you have, how well you get along with other members of the medical staff, how well you turn over patients and contribute to hospital revenue streams. And that was sort of a shock to me at first. The differences between academic medicine and private practice were unsettling until I figured out that I fit in there. Yeah. So during that adjustment phase, it felt for a while, those two years or however long felt like a mistake and then realize, yeah, this, this is better. And you know that, I mean, that's, that's one of the tough things of evaluating a decision of, you know, you're, you're making a prediction that's not that, that this direction will be better. You might have second thoughts. Have I made a mistake? Do I keep with it? I mean, that that's hard to navigate and, and, and think through, but I, I, I think, yeah, that, that path um, that you went through seems, seems clear. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I hear young women nowadays talking about making a pivot a job pivot. And I I guess they mean a job change when they're in a situation where they're not happy and they want a quick fix. And like my being a medical director for a couple of years for that HMO, that was a pivot. Uh, Well, it was a total change. It was really outside of clinical medicine. And uh, the real change became the switch to private practice. And so I guess what young women are talking about, young professionals, is when they don't like where they are for whatever reason, the hours, the schedule, the patient load, the uh, clinical practice structure, they want to pivot to a different kind of practice. That's very reasonable, but Mm -hmm. it's really difficult to do. Yeah. It's difficult and scary. In retrospect, I remember thinking that I was brave to do that, that both of us, me and my husband, were brave to just take this huge move into a city we had never practiced in and give it a go. And it turned, it worked out beautifully. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. And maybe to talk about some of the other challenges you faced along the way. I mean, becoming an expert in burnout seems like it was not an academic study. This is something you lived through. So I was wondering right. if you could talk to us about what it was like to experience burnout. You know, when did this happen? Tell, tell us about that. I did not experience burnout until much later in my career. I was almost 60 years old. 
And I was getting a little tired and working still probably 50 hours a week, taking night call. That's a lot when you're 60. Um, I was happy with my accomplishments and quality improvement and donor milk banking. And it was just kind of the mundane work of being in a NICU. I was tired, physically tired. We had some very difficult and challenging ethical cases. One tiny, tiny baby whose father would not let him go when he had huge hemorrhages in his brain. And then he developed a fungal meningitis brain infection. And he was just going to be devastated. And the father just could not see his way to allow his child to die. That case bothered me a lot and a a lot of my partners too, but, you know, we got through it and the baby went home. And of course the baby turned out to be totally devastated, but there was another case of a child who was born with a extremely unusual birth defect called cloacal extravy, where your rectum and urethra and vagina all empty out into this thing in the lower part of your abdomen, like a hole in the baby's pelvis. And it's a terrible birth defect. And it's usually inoperable. This baby had several operations and the surgeons attempted to fix everything She lost one kidney. The other kidney didn't work very well. She had a colostomy bag. Her parents were in and out of the military. And mom got a divorce during her one-year stay at the NICU. Those two cases hit me at the same time for different reasons. I was troubled by what we were doing in neonatology. I was troubled by all the technology. I was troubled by this. Because we can fix something, we should fix it. And um, so I became emotionally overwhelmed. I had never let cases get to me like those two cases did. And maybe it had to do with the parents. Maybe it had to do with my personal life at the time. I'm not quite sure. But physical exhaustion on top of emotional overwhelm were the first signs. My nurse practitioners noticed that I became very cynical. And mm-hmm. I said, what is going on with you? I said, why do we bother? What's the point? Oh, Who cares? Gosh. Nobody. Yeah. And I was just so uh, dissociated from my patient. Oh, uh, doesn't matter. Some something's bound to go wrong. I and said so right, that one day, right? And 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 right there, that sounds like a key difference between just exhaustion and fatigue and burnout. Clearly, yeah. We all get exhausted and tired after twenty four or thirty six hours of call, but when it's chronic and when you throw on the emotional component, and then when you start to feel separated from your patient. It is clearly abnormal. And I felt that, but I didn't recognize it. One of my partners asked me one day, are you okay? You just don't seem like yourself. And I said, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm not okay. And then finally, Mark, one day 
I said to a, a partner, I just don't feel like I'm making any difference. What is the point? What, why bother? And he looked at me and he said, you really are not yourself. And that's when I knew that lack of fulfillment, that lack of agency was the final part of the triad that told me, oh, my God, I'm totally burnt out. I went home and said, Philip, did you understand that I was getting burnt out all this time? He said, yeah, didn't you know? I said, well, I guess I didn't realize it. Why didn't you say something? He said, I I thought you knew that you were kind of fried. (laughs) And I was going to ask, how generally true is that, that somebody else would notice the cynicism and the burnout and point it out as opposed to kind of self-discovered? From my reading, it's most common that our loved ones notice it in us first. He knew it and my partner knew it at, before I did, before I figured it out. I was just dragging around going through the motions and and they both said, yeah, we knew you were burned out. I, I'm, it's like, why didn't you tell me? And I guess they thought I needed to discover it for myself. But physicians who are burnt out tend to not ask their loved ones how things are going and talk about their feelings and bring home that really troublesome case. They tend to not admit, man, I'm just really overwhelmed with this case. My husband and I shared that case, the baby with the birth defect. So he knew that I was real torn about, you know, they had the baby on dialysis. It was just a mess. It was just a big mess. And this poor baby finally went home. And her mother came back into my husband's clinic and said, when can we stop doing this dialysis? And he said, you can stop doing it anytime you want. It was peritoneal dialysis. She was doing it at home. And the mother said, she can't be transplanted. And he said, no, there's no room in her body to put in an artificial kidney. And so the mom said, I'm ready to stop dialysis. And that happened when the baby was 14 months old after all of this time and doing all those things. So he was affected by this case too, and he wasn't talking about it, but I don't think he was burnt out. We've talked about this quite a bit. He didn't do as much physical call. He didn't do as much up at night procedural work as we did in the NICU. And so he wasn't as exhausted as I was. Yeah. So, but he did notice my being that way. Yeah. And he didn't help me talk about it. I don't know why, but he didn't. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like there's a lesson there. If someone listening is the loved one of a physician or maybe just even more speaking healthcare or elsewhere, if somebody seems not themselves, if they seem cynical and and questioning why am i doing this it's it's it sounds like it's it's worth bringing up even if that might oh, be easy to do totally yeah totally sometimes you'll see your loved one just come home and pour a drink and want to sit alone mm-hmm. and i probably did that many nights pour up a glass of wine and just want to sit down and kind of make the day go away so if you see your loved one who's a nurse or a physician or a respiratory therapist kind of 
alienate themselves, not only from you, but from their patients, please ask questions. What's going on? What's troubling you? Can we talk about it? Because the only way you get better is to acknowledge the things that are overwhelming, to to actually look at the issues, to actually say, I'm working too many hours. I don't feel like I'm making a difference with my patients or these patients are troubling me. You've got to admit what it is that is burning you out. In the pandemic, though, all those ER doctors knew it was not enough beds. It was not enough nurses. It was waiting on a bed in the ICU. It was death and dying right and left. They knew what was burning them out and they were working their tails off. But it took a lot for hospital administrators to figure out and for their managers to figure out, hey, guys, we need to sit down and talk about our feelings. Physicians have feelings. Nurses have feelings. And if they don't talk about those feelings with their peers, they stuff them. And stuffing them is what creates the burnout. Right. So how prevalent is physician burnout and how I'm going to assume how much worse is that now three years since the start of the pandemic? It's, it's very prevalent. It's up to about 50% mm-hmm. in Medscape surveys. It used to be around 30 to 35% and people were raising red flags among nurses. It's 45%. Some nurses even feel uh, susceptible to violence and verbal attacks from patients. They're admitting to not feeling supported by their hospital administrators. So physician burnout and nurse burnout are max now compared to when they've ever been. And the pandemic made all of that worse because the pandemic showed how poorly our hospital systems function when they're stressed. They function well in normal everyday activities, but our hospital systems do not do well when they have to ratchet up. And so it's very prevalent right now. Anxiety among nurses is sky high, 55, 60%. The younger women are more affected by anxiety than the older ones. They feel like they don't have anybody to talk to. That's a recurring theme. I don't have any support. Nobody cares about me. My manager just wants the schedule filled. They're short staffed. They, there are not enough nurses to go around in the ICUs and the emergency department. So we're really in a bad predicament right now in America in healthcare, physicians and nurses. I read the other day pharmacists are taking it on the chin as well. Respiratory right. therapists and pharmacists are right. feeling the, the strain. Right. And I think, you know, from, I mean, you know, we, we have some, some shared experience around quality improvement from your you as a physician, me as an engineer, there's overlap in, you know, some of these methodologies that are used. And part of that, um, you know, focuses on systems thinking and yeah. you're, you're pointing to systemic causes of burnout. How, how often do you see the mistake of a leader or an organization blaming the people who are burned out for the burnout? A lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. 
the hospital administrators that wondered why pediatric ICU nurses were quitting. Some of them had gotten sick during the pandemic. Others were quitting because they were so short-staffed. They brought in traveling nurses to to staff the patients, paid the traveling nurses way more than they paid the staff who left. Well, and they paid the agency a lot. Yeah, they paid the agency who paid the travelers. And the regular nurses who stuck it out and worked hard and oriented the travelers, they felt like they were not being supported. My daughter had been at Dell Children's in the pediatric ICU for two years in the pandemic before that organization gave them a bonus for staying. And it was a tiny bonus. So, I mean, just something like that. Just, wow, we really appreciate your staying. Right. It right. took two years for them to say that to their staff. Yeah. And then that just compounds the problems and the cycle and the spiral. Right. Right. People leave. The overstaffing sure. is worse. People get more burned out. They leave. I mean. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. And that the recent survey of nurses said, oh, gee, 40% of them are going to change jobs in the next two years. It may be that notion of, I just need to pivot. I just need to get to another job, maybe go to this clinic or this hospital. Maybe it'll be better. And a lot of improvements have taken place. A lot of big clinics have made improvements. They've created wellness champions, nurses or physicians who really care about burnout and care about personnel well-being. Uh, But I don't think we're talking about it enough. I don't think we as a society are saying, is each hospital or each large clinic working on supporting their personnel? Is mental health a priority in the hospital? Not just infection, not just fall risk, not just um, unhappy patients, but providers. How happy are your providers? Right. So I'm not seeing that yet come to the forefront from from what i from what i hear i agree we need a lot more focus we need a lot more um workplace improvement and to me that goes in hand in hand with quality improvement right people want to do good work and when they're overwhelmed overburdened not supported they can't do that and then i can see where you know the burnout cycles continue so i think you know we need to help reverse help people with who who are burned out and, and and let's let's try to not burn out the next generation exactly as much you, right? the stanford folks have written quite a bit about physician burnout and they advocate something as simple as a checklist for burnout every year or every 6 months and the personnel all just you know go through 10 or 12 things and they check off yes or no and if they get four yeses that indicate a tendency to burnout, then they all have a meeting and they sit around and talk about the issues and maybe something good comes of it. So something just as simple as measure how your providers are feeling could happen very easily. I mean, it's like not any big deal for hospitals to survey providers. They do it all the time about patient satisfaction. Yeah. 
Well, I hope we have more of that, you know, at a, a system level, at a leadership level. Susan, I know you have, you know, something people can use at an individual level. Um, oh, I do. I do. I've developed a checklist for burnout for working mothers. It's a free resource on my website. And I've uh, developed some other resources, you know, quick solutions guide. Um, the other thing I'll say about burnout is once you have it, it's not fixable with just a pivot and a change in your job or location. It takes some real work, some therapy, some self-care, some time on the couch, whether it's with a friend or with a therapist or a coach. It's a big deal. And it's not easy to bounce out of burnout. At least it wasn't for me. And so sorting through the issues that got you there is important. That's why it's so important for loved ones who have a healthcare provider, family member, get them to talk about what's going on, get them to get some help if possible. Yeah. Well, thank you for that important message, Susan. And thank you for telling us about, you know, some of your career arc and um, you know, what you, what you learned from that and, and for talking about this important issue of burnout. So I'll put a link to that burnout checklist in the show notes. I hope people will check that out and use it. And uh, again, our guest has been Dr. Susan Landers. Her book is So Many Babies, My Life Balancing a Busy Medical Career and Motherhood. So, you know, Susan, again, thank you. Um, really appreciate you being here and, you know, sharing so much with us today. Yeah, you're very welcome. It was fun. Well, not fun, but well, it was important. It was important. And necessary. And you were engaging. Um, so thank you for that. I appreciate Thank that. you very much, Mark. I appreciate it. Well, thanks again. Thanks so much to Dr. Susan Landers for being our guest today. For links to her book, some special offers and more, look in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 213. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me my favorite mistake podcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.